the whole path is actually about ethics. It's actually about virtue. When we look at concentration, even the deep states of absorption, they're described in the suttas, they're described in the discourses of the Buddha as based upon virtue. They're, they arise only when the mind is free from um, hindrances and free from all unwholesome states. So concentration is not about just focusing our attention on something as we might when we're doing some kind of worldly project. It's about a particularly powerful, wholesome state of mind that is concentrated. And when we look at wisdom, when we look at particularly the experience of liberation, when we look at, say, the experience of Nibbana, what we're looking at is a profoundly ethical state, a profoundly pure mind. The Buddha said in the discourses of the Buddha that what he called Nibbana was the ending of greed, the ending of hate, the ending of delusion. That's what he called Nibbana. So when we seek or search for the experience of awakening, what we're really doing is we are committing to purifying the mind of greed, hate, and delusion. And when we realize awakening, it's not that we float up in some blissful cloud of, oh boy, I got it. I am now awakened. What we realize is that the, there is, has become an end of greed. Greed is no longer arising. Hate has been uprooted never to arise again. And delusion is not organizing our perception anymore. We've purified the mind. Shyla Catherine began meditating in 1980 and quickly fell in love with the practice of silent contemplation, accumulating over nine years of silent retreat experience. The wisdom gained through direct encounter with the Dhamma, along with the guidance of teachers from India, Thailand, Nepal, and the West, allowed Shaila the opportunity to deeply explore meditation, including the absorption states of jhana and insight practices. She has authored two books, Focused and Fearless, and Wisdom Wide and Deep, which introduce and guide practitioners to develop powerful concentration techniques supporting liberating insight. She is the founder and principal teacher at Insight Meditation South Bay in California and the creator of Bodhi Courses, an online Buddhist classroom. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off the cushion. I am your host, Ian White Mahar. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit ProvidenceZen.org. Shaila, you began meditating when you were 17. You've been practicing for 38 years now. 
What has maintained your interest over all this time? I, I think it's a brilliant way of investigating the mind, of understanding how I perceive the world and how in that way of perceiving that world, the way of encountering life, I might be contributing to harm or to benefit. I might be bringing in uh, defilements and distortions of perception, or I might be meeting it with clarity and calmness and with compassion and with peace. So I, I, I sensed right from the beginning that meditation and the introspection, the understanding of the mind's encounter with experience was this amazing place to explore, this amazing moment to explore that was always fresh, always new, and always significant and vital because it was what was really happening right now, right here. You know, you paint such a, <laughs> you paint such a great picture of it. But there's also, in my experience anyway, like great boredom and frustration and, and um, sometimes real struggle. Sure, there's struggle. Sure, there's um, frustration. I can't say that boredom has ever been big on my list. Um, <laughs> I have rarely ever found meditation boring uh, because the Buddha, at least the Buddhist tradition, it offers such a wide range of teachings, such a, a an extraordinary array of meditation practices. I mean, just look at the Buddhist lists. There are so many things that we could that we can explore, that we can develop. So if my interest starts to fade when I'm practicing one method, I just practice another one. And if mm. my if I feel like I've you know sort of done enough developing one quality, I just turn my interest to another one. And I figure in the long run, I'll be developing all a, a lot of different things. So I often practice with the intention not just to stick to one thing but to have the commitment to maintain my interest in my practice. So I'll sometimes be practicing different things or I'll shift between different kinds of approaches or techniques so that the interest stays alive. Mm. And, and for me, the real interest is the development of the whole path. It's not to necessarily uh, uh, perfect one thing or express loyalty to one teacher or one tradition. My um, emphasis is really and what, what I've always loved and what uh, builds my, or what I have confidence in in the practice is what is called the three trainings, the development of virtue, the Pali term is sila, the development of the mind and meditation, the Pali term is samadhi, and the development of wisdom, the understanding, the um, the attitudes and orientation we bring to experience, the um, the wisdom component, the way we discriminate and to discern what's significant in experience, and that's the panya. So these three trainings of sila, samadhi, and panya um, are kind of give give me an overarching view of the practice, and at some times in my practice, and I'll be focusing on one aspect of virtue or another aspect of meditation or another aspect of understanding. And overall, I find that that actually gives me 
far more than I could possibly even do in my practice. So there's always something that is going to interest my mind. If I don't feel like meditating at that moment, well, there might be a, a sutta that I might like to contemplate. If I don't feel like studying, I can sit in meditation. If I don't feel like doing either of them, I could cultivate kindness or compassion or do service or generosity. I could give. And I, I envision all of those practices as part of my, all of those approaches as part of my practice and my path. I am now. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit chagrin. Where I, I sort of when I was referring to the boredom, I was like, ah, oh, just on the city. You know, sometimes I, I'm on the cushion, just a little frustrated. But really, what you're talking about is a whole life experience. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And when when I when I emphasize the sense of uh, living the Dharma. Mm-hmm. Living the Dharma, then I don't. Then I don't narrow the vision of my practice simply to meditation. And I think this has been very important, in particular for myself, and maybe why I um, am happy that you gave me the opportunity to say it out loud um, is because I do love the meditation practice, mm-hmm. and I have because I love it so much. There's the real tendency that I can overemphasize just the meditation. And, and I do. I love the concentration practices. I love the, the, the details of insight practice and vipassana practices. So I can get very, very involved. I mean, as you said in the introduction, I've spent over nine years in silence. Mm-hmm. That's, um, I mean, it was over 30, 30, um, 38 years, but still that's a fair chunk of one's life to spend just meditating. Yes. So, so it's important in my view of my own practice that I not narrow my practice to just meditation, but I really see it as life. And then those moments of quiet, those moments of stillness, those moments when I go deep into the meditation are held within a broader view of the practice. I was listening to your uh, a Dharma talk that you gave on, I think it was Right View, is that it? And you listed the Middle Discourses, and I had just, I just purchased the Middle Discourses recently, and was stunned by how, <laughs> how thick it was. I was like, I'm going to be reading these for quite a while. Um, and I wondered, but what I really loved about your conversation about Right View was this um this perspective that you had about the detachment of mindfulness from ethics and mindfulness is everywhere in the world right now and there's this part of me that is just so excited about it because i think it's become the allowed meditation to become very accessible but and i'm paraphrasing you so i, I you know please hop in to correct the language but when you said when it's uh, essentially when mindfulness is detached from ethics then it doesn't really lead to the end of suffering or the liberation from suffering and I just wondered if you could add a little bit about how you understand the teachings of right view and and you do a lot of work with concentration technique 
but also making sure or ensuring that ethics are included so that we're, we're also talking about liberation from suffering. This is a very important question. Um, thank you for raising it. Um, whether we're practicing in our paying attention to our action or being mindful of a sensation or the breath, or we're developing deep concentration states or looking at our views and opinions and attitudes and um, thoughts, the whole path is actually about ethics. It's actually about virtue. When we look at concentration, even the deep states of absorption, they're described in the suttas, they're described in the discourses of the Buddha as, as based upon virtue. They're, they arise only when the mind is free from um, hindrances and free from all unwholesome states. So concentration is not about just focusing our attention on something as we might when we're doing some kind of worldly project. It's about a particularly powerful, wholesome state of mind that is concentrated. And when we look at wisdom, when we look at particularly um, the, the experience of liberation, when we look at, say, the experience of Nibbana, what we're looking at is a profoundly ethical state, a profoundly pure mind. The Buddha said in the discourses of the Buddha that what he called Nibbana was the ending of greed, the ending of hate, the ending of delusion. That's what he called Nibbana. So when we seek or search for the experience of awakening, what we're really doing is we are committing to purifying the mind of greed, hate, and delusion. And when we realize awakening, it's not that we float up in some blissful cloud of, oh boy, I got it. I am now awakened. What we realize is that the, there is, has become an end of greed. Greed is no longer arising. Hate has been uprooted never to arise again. And delusion is not organizing our perception anymore. We've purified the mind. So I see ethics as being, of course, arising in the way that we act and the way that we speak in terms of our, our, our ordinary activities and our conduct. But ethics is also about meditation. Every time we sit down to calm the mind, calming the mind implies letting go of the hindrances, letting go of the defilements, letting go of the things that agitate the mind. And what agitates the mind? Except craving and desire and anger and aversion, conceit, arrogance, possessiveness. Those are the things that agitate the mind. So meditation is an ethical action and wisdom and letting go and real, realizing awakening, that's the profoundest expression of ethics, where we really experience the ending of those defilements. So then in that sense, although I initially said there are three modes of the training, the mode of ethics, the mode of, of um, concentration or meditation, and the mode of wisdom, 
um, I appreciate that you've now given me the chance to recognize that perhaps they're really one, that it is a path that has dimensions of clarity and purity until finally all those defilements are uprooted. So when somebody commits to a practice, what we're really committing to is to clean up the, the defilements of the mind. Well, I, I really appreciate how much emphasis you put on the fact that this is really a life, um, a, I don't want to say a lifestyle, but a sort of a, a life path. And, you know, I was speaking to somebody else about the jhanas, which is, is something that you are so focused, you know, you, you, you have two books on the jhanas. And I think it could be easy for someone to become very good at that practice and not and then leave it all right there on the cushion, right? And then walk away. And so I'm wondering when you're working with your students, with the people that, that come to study with you, how do you help them understand that this isn't just about mastering a technique, but living into a lifestyle? One of the things I love about the training to attain the deep absorption states of jhana is that one has to really look very carefully and very clearly at the subtleties of mind and develop meditative skills, develop mental skills. All the work to enter jhana occurs prior to jhana because the precondition for entering the absorption states is to have a mind that is free from unwholesome states, free from the hindrances, and has cultivated a strength of wholesome states. We're making a mind that is malleable, that is stable, that is, um, there's a certain fitness and uprightness and efficiency to the concentrated mind. And so it's a beautiful practice because when there is, um, when we're oriented towards dropping the attention into these absorption states, we can sense any put any subtle um, hindrance that's preventing that absorption. It's like we can tune into very subtle unwholesome states, subtle forms of agitation. And so I appreciate that practice when we do experience um, a wholesome state of mind, we can experience the joy and the happiness of it. So not only are we getting a clear sight of any unwholesome states, we are invited to let the mind and body be suffused with and drenched with that wholesome purity of mind, the pleasantness, the joy, the delight of a wholesome state. It's not sensual craving. So we're nourishing the mind with the pleasures and the peace of concentration while we are abandoning the hindrances. So we're learning to first let go of the course experiences of, you know, hindrances and greed and hate and 
agitation and thoughts and thoughts about me and mine and what I did and what I will do. So sure, we let go of those. But as the concentration deepens, we continue to let go. We continue to let go. And through the whole progression of concentration practice, we are in subtler and subtler and subtler ways letting go. So it's a training of relinquishment. The whole concentration practice is a training of relinquishment. And so when we recognize what we're developing, we're developing a mind free from obstacles and free from unwholesome states, a mind supported by concentration, by balance, by equanimity, by spiritual joy, uh, by tranquility, by other wholesome states, and is becoming very fit. And then when we... Um, understand that it's all about letting go, we find that the progression of concentrating the mind is giving us the skills to realize Nibbana, to realize the ultimate release, the ultimate letting go, that that lets go of the deepest underlying tendencies to realize Nibbana. So the very Beginning instructions occur in a context of realizing Nibbana because they involve letting go. And every step along the way is a training in letting go. There is a way that somebody might see it as gaining a concentration state. But I speak so frequently about it as letting go that I think the natural human tendency to want to attain and gain and accomplish something for self gets dissolved step by step, instruction by instruction in the course of the training, because it's all about letting go. Hmm. And there are many deep defilements, particularly those that are oriented towards our self-interest and self-attachments, even the way that self claims our meditative experiences. And though we certainly can um, enjoy the purity of the mind that develops with meditation, simultaneous with that, we are letting go of the self-interest in it. And we, I think we have to do it gradually. I think we have to do it gradually so that the graduation, the gradual development of the concentration practice helps train people to do this letting go. I mean, somebody can certainly just let go of everything all at once. I mean, at at one point, the Buddha was asked basically for his teachings in brief. And he basically said, don't cling to anything in this world. (laughs) So if somebody doesn't want to take any time to meditate, that's fine. Just don't cling to anything in this world, not (laughs) internally or externally. And then you have the Buddha's teaching in a nutshell. The problem is that's easier said than done. Yeah. And most of us have to train gradually to see all the subtle ways that our mind attaches to things. Sure, we attach to sensual perceptions and the pleasant things in the world that we like. We might attach to possessions. And and those are superficial. We know very quickly that um, we can't attach to those. But we might attach to our views and opinions. We might cling to Um, our perceptions of the world. We might cling to our meditative experiences. We might cling to um, our practice techniques or 
our very sense of who we are, our sense of self. And this, since the concentration practices, as well as the insight practices, when supported by right few, are understood as practices of letting go of relinquishment, then all along the way, we're going to see the places where the mind is momentarily stuck. It's momentarily enchanted, perhaps, by the pleasure of the absorption states. And because we entered into the process with the aim of letting go, we're going to see, oh, you're trying to cling to that? <laughs> no good. And we'll let that go and then go deeper into the practice. And oh, we see the mind trying to cling to something else. And oh, we let it go. And that's why it's a practice. But I think it's great to practice that. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I, um, I had never actually heard of the jhanas until recently and, or, you know, a few months ago. And now I'm, <laughs> I've been talking about it with my friends repeatedly, uh, just very excited about what opportunities are, are there. You've written two books on understanding the, the concentration techniques that lead to uh, liberating insight, support liberating insight. One is more of an introductory book and the other is more um, for advanced practitioners. Is that how I'm understanding the two books or is there something more distinct about them? It's not so much that it's there's something more distinct, but I, it's true. I do recommend that um, meditators first read Focused and Fearless, although I'm not sure how introductory it is. Mm -hmm. um, the first, um, throughout the whole book, there are lots of suggestions for deepening concentration in daily life and, um, and how to establish a practice, how to deepen concentration using the breath as the primary object. So the whole of Focused and Fearless is really oriented towards developing concentration using the breath as the primary object, and then applying that to insight. So it does include a reference to some of the formless attainments of infinite space and consciousness, infinite consciousness, and some of those sort of immaterial perceptions. But that's not the emphasis. It's really about deepening concentration. So although I wouldn't say it was introductory, I would say it was more accessible. Mm -hmm. And practical and that somebody could work through all the exercises the meditation techniques and the daily life exercises in the context of ordinary life one wouldn't need to be in retreat to have a a full exploration of concentration of, of the way that it's presented and focused and fearless now when i wrote focused and fearless i wrote it um, after coming out of a 10-month silent meditation retreat where I was exploring concentration and jhana states. I had already been meditating for, oh, I'm not sure how long, more than 20 years before I had ever undertaken jhana practice. Um, it's true that in Asia, some beginners, sometimes in monasteries, they begin people with concentration practices that lead to jhana. However, I tend to prefer people to have already established a mindfulness practice of some kind 
some kind of a meditation practice in which they have a sense of what their mind does. Because the precondition for entering absorption is to have abandoned the hindrances and the unwholesome states. And through a development of mindfulness or uh, mindfulness of the Satipatthana practices, which are the mindfulness of body, feelings, mind, and mental phenomena, um, or many other meditation approaches, somebody will have opportunities to work with and skillfully let go of hindrances. Because I don't think it's wise to just shove them away and pretend that we're uh, beyond them. I think we have to face whatever our uh, hindrances and defilements are. We have to see them. We have to recognize them and learn skillful ways of freeing the mind from their force. I don't think we can use meditative brute force, you know, just pushing them away, just shoving them away. I think we have to look at them clearly. And most mindfulness practices do that. Uh, in the opening chapters, there are plenty of, in Focused and Fearless, plenty of, um, of exercises to create the conditions that are most conducive to concentration, which include working with the obstacles, and it includes cultivating the factors of mind that intensify our meditation, what are called the jhana factors. And that's given a lot of emphasis in Focused and Fearless. But but because that 10-month retreat for me was quite mind-blowing, to be perfectly honest. I mean, <laughs> I, can, I had already, yeah, I had already at that point done, what, at least seven years in retreat. Oh. And, um, and yet I had never explored the jhanas. And it was time for me. It was time. I felt in my own practice that I was... Um, yeah, I was continuing my retreat practice. Yeah, I was continuing my daily practice. But I felt that I wasn't making the, I wasn't getting to the depths that I sensed were possible. Um, I wasn't, um, it was as though I was repeating the same territory again and again. And sometimes from slightly different angles, but I just felt like something more was needed. And so when I entered into this long retreat, I thought, well, I'll warm up my practice with concentration and then shift to these other insight practices that I wanted to do. But what I found was that the development of the concentration was profound to me. And, in, and I used the entire retreat. I established the jhanas in the first weeks of the retreat and then used that whole 10 months to explore different approaches to jhana, different um, experiences of the states, to explore how those states functioned and what the link was or the transition was from jhana to insight practices. So I really wanted to take, I really wanted to take a deep dive into the experience of those the stable concentration of jhana and see how that affected insight practice. So I, but it was so mind blowing to me that I really needed to write when I came out of the retreat to try to understand what had happened. Because when I'm just in retreat, I'm going along with the practice, but I'm not necessarily using the, the, the functions of mind to understand what's happening step by step. And writing the book really helped me understand the significance of what I had explored and how it could be of use to other people. 
So before I left the retreat, one of my teachers said, hey, you should write a book about this because um, my teachers there didn't know anybody who had spent as much time in the West exploring those states that I had, as I had just done. And they thought it would be a useful book. So I wrote the book. Um, and it was true at that time, there, were, there was very little that was written about jhana. So there wasn't much to read. But um, some years later, I attended a retreat with a Burmese Sayadaw, Venerable Pawak Sayadaw, to um, learn from him how he developed uh, jhana and insight practices. And he guided me through all the objects that are used for jhana practice in the um, Theravada tradition and all the various reflections and concentration practices that support it. Then we worked with the discerning of mind matter, the five aggregates and causation, and then engaged in specific Vipassana practices um, that kind of guide the mind through what are known in the insight tradition as the 16 knowledges that culminate in Nibbana. So we undertook a training process, a meditative process that involved multiple retreats over the course of a number of years. And um, he asked me to write about, to write a book on that approach to meditation so that uh, the approaches to both the deep concentration states of jhana and all the samadhi, the the, the the concentration practices, as well as the insight practices, would be accessible and available to Westerners. So Wisdom Wide and Deep is a much more detailed approach to concentration because it, it expands uh, the concentration practices beyond the, um, beyond the breath, and it goes into the details of the special kinds of insight practices that a deeply concentrated mind can do. And how does liberation appear for you as, a, as an outcome of these practices? I've heard some of what you've said in terms of the concentration allows for a real stability of the mind. Um, is it the stability that then allows you to go into the insight practices uh, to see the liberating uh, teachings, or can you say a little more about that? Oh, I'm glad you use that term stability. Um, some people describe um, concentration and jhana as and emphasize the stillness of it. Um, some people emphasize more uh, the the feeling qualities of it, or the, the 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 clarity of the focus. I tend to emphasize the stability of the mind because. It's one of the most remarkable things is to see how stable the mind can be when everything is changing. Mm. And the essence of insight practice is to see the impermanent changing nature of things that are just so rapidly changing in everything that we're perceiving. And if the mind isn't stable and the mind isn't concentrated, we're not going to see how the, 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 the deeper nature, the impermanent nature and the functioning of body and mind. Mm. Because we're going to just get caught up in the superficial appearance of things. 
the concepts of things, the ideas we have about things, whether we like them, whether they, we don't like them, the stories that the mind makes about things, our personal interest. And it's great to have insight into our personal interest in things, our personal tendencies, our personal patterns, our psychological dimensions. That is, a, that is an important component of insight, the personal insight. But the impersonal insights of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, of uh, the not-self characteristic, of the way that nothing in this world can be clung to and can provide us lasting happiness. When we see uh, when we see that, when we see those characteristics with insight, that's when the mind really lets go, not just of one personal pattern, but it lets go of the deepest tendencies to attach to things, to want to crave and hold on to things. And when we're seeing things rapidly changing, constantly changing, the mind doesn't even attach. It doesn't cling. It doesn't hold on. It's like trying to stick your hand in a flowing river and hold on to the water. It's ridiculous. We don't try and stick our hand in a flowing brook or stream or river and say, stop water, stop. I'm putting my hand here. And it, and, and sure, we might feel it flowing past. But it's similar, I think, when the mind is seeing the rapid changing of things with insight practice, then we don't try to fix on anything. And I found that it's the deep stability of the concentrated mind that allows us to see everything flowing by and to not grasp, to not get entangled with it, but to still just have that stable view. It's not fixed. It's not stuck. It's malleable and flexible, clear and able to see. The mind is fit to see. But there's a sense of stability that whatever's flowing by doesn't catch us up, doesn't draw us into a, an attached relationship to it. So that stability, I think, is critical and crucial for having impersonal insights, to have the kind of insights that free the mind from the subtlest forms of attachment. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Shyla Catherine encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about her teaching by picking up a copy of her books, Focused and Fearless, and Wisdom Wide and Deep. If you would like to sit a retreat with Shyla, you can find her schedule at imsb.org. Her online courses can be found at bodhicourses.org. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at ProvidenceZen.org. If you'd like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at ProvidenceZen.org videos. My name is Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.